Good evening. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 22, very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22. Last time I was able to preach, I was able to speak about the tree of life that we'll have in the garden, the water of life that we'll have in heaven, and the fact that we will not be under a curse anymore. And so tonight, I want to look at what worship is here in this world, and also what worship will look like in heaven. So, Revelation 22, starting in verse 1, says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your Lord's day. Thank you again that we get to come in here and to sing praises to you, to hear from your word. Father, thank you that you wash us in the, the, the water of your word, Father. Thank you that you sanctify us by your word. And even now, would you keep my lips from sinning against you? Father, would you keep our ears from sinning against you? Would you open up our ears so that we might hear and experience the glory of of God, that we might behold even Christ tonight. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for giving us your Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen. I once heard it said that there is not a more precious and sobering moment than to watch a saint die. Why is that? It's because one has tarried in this world for so long they have faced myriads of trials, encountered many enemies, yet they kept the faith. They fought the good fight. They finished the race. And there's no greater rest for a saint, for a believer, for one who's trusting in Christ than to enter into death. And why is that? It's because death, this earthly death, is the grand step into eternity where we will be before the throne of God and we will see our Savior face to face our central focus in heaven will be on beholding God and all of his splendor and excellence that we will perceive that we will see God and the person of Christ now this can never fully happen here because we have competing desires or another way you can say it is that we have lingering idols. On one side, we see the glory of God in the person of Christ through faith in him. We desire to serve and honor and to love him as whole men worshiping a whole God. Yet, there still remains another side. 
that is full of selfishness, full of envy, full of revenge, full of jealousy. Really, there's a side left in us that worships ourselves. In reality, we make ourselves the central focus of the story. And since we're thinking about worship tonight, I thought it would be great to define what worship is. Biblical worship, if you take notes, this would be a time to take a note. Biblical worship is ascribing or giving glory to God in all of life. Biblical worship is ascribing or giving glory to God in all of life. In reality, we must worship God according to the way he prescribes us to worship him. And also, not only that way, but and also from a heart that loves and trusts and wants to see him glorified. And the scriptures give us a clear idea on how we are to worship him in both public, here, and in private. So tonight I have three points, three simple points. First, what worship is not. Secondly, what worship is. And thirdly, what worship will be like in heaven. So let's start with what worship is not. Worship is not primarily about us. It's not about our feelings. It's not about our wants. It's not about our desires. It's not about the songs we enjoy singing. It's not about the scriptures we wish they would read. It's not primarily about you. Now, feelings do have a factor, but when we make worship primarily about us and our wants, we become the idol. Think of Adam for a moment. Adam had a relationship with God that was without sin. He was without sin. All he had to do was obey the simplest of commands. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree over there or there will be death. Eternal communion and life was offered to him, yet his focus, his focus became on self, self-glory. I want to be God. You can say, oh, Jordan, it wasn't Adam's fault. It was the devil's fault. The devil came uh, slithering around and tricked him. No. Adam wanted to be God. That's why he ate of the, the fruit. Adam broke the first commandment in the garden. You shall have no other gods before me. Adam wanted to be like God and in return made himself the focus of his own worship. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gets it right in regards to the first commandment and worship. I want to read a couple questions from it. Question 46 says this, what is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Question 47, what is forbidden in the first commandment? First commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God. And then giving of that worship and glory to any other, which is due him alone. From the very beginning, God demanded true worship. 
He wanted to be worshipped alone. He doesn't want you to worship any other thing, any other person. He wants worship due his name. God is a holy God. And he requires holy and right worship of him and him alone. Now, we don't just get to make up the rules of how we worship God. Let me show you biblical examples of improper worship as it pertains to both the form, how we worship, and the heart, the motive behind worship. First, let me give you an example from Leviticus 10 of what happened when we get the form of worship wrong. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron? In Leviticus 10, they desecrated the sanctuary of God with unholy fire. For that very action, God consumed them with fire. He burned them up. God had instructed a proper way, a form for them to worship. Yet they either remained ignorant They either remained ignorant or blatantly disobeyed his commands, his instruction. It didn't matter that they were the sons of Aaron. God's not going to show partiality just because of who your parents are. He's not going to show partiality just because of the lineage you come from. If you worship him wrongly, there is judgment. Moses explains this a little bit further. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. Nadab and Abihu sinned publicly and scandalously. So God vindicates his honor in a public manner. That all men may learn to give him glory and worship alone according to his commandments. According to the way he wants to be worshipped. Now, this, to me, when I was thinking about this, this should strike fear. This should strike fear in those who worship God wrongly. Those who make up gimmicks in order to attract people. Men who would rather tickle ears than to preach Christ and Him crucified. Don't be deceived. There are many wolves in this world. Many, I would say many more wolves in this world than there are true shepherds in this world who would rather you fill their pews, they don't care about you, rather you fill their pews than actually care for your souls. The Pharisees are also a great example of improper worshipers. Where Nadab and Abihu clearly got the form of worship wrong, the Pharisees most certainly got the heart of worship wrong. If you'll flip over to Matthew 23, I want you to see this and listen to how Jesus talks to the Pharisees. His harshest words that he has for the people of earth are, the, are for the ones who seemingly have the right form but clearly lack the right heart. Clearly lack the right heart. They appear to have no love for God or their neighbor. Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. This is, this is a multitude of people that he's talking to. He doesn't fear man. Jesus doesn't fear man or what they're about to do to him. 
He doesn't, fe- he doesn't fear what the Pharisees will do to him and take him to the cross. He's here to preach boldly against their actions. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They sit in the place of the law and the commands of God. So do, listen to this, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Do what they tell you to do because the form by what they're saying is right, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They don't want to lift the burdens. They'd rather place the burdens on the people. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, their appearance. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Let me speak to our leaders in the room real quick. Do you just love the fact that you're a pastor or a deacon and not really serve in the way that you should shepherd and care for the flock of God? Do you just like being acknowledged by the church and not really going out to serve the church, to to worship this God, to care for the people of God, to love them? I was struck to the core when I was reading this this week. I don't want to be someone that just likes the name pastor. I want to be a pastor that shepherds, that loves, that cares. Likewise, leaders, there are many in the room. Are you, are you that type of leader? Do you want to care for the flock? Or is it all about appearance? Is it all about what you get out of the lot? Skip down to verse 27. Show you, we'll close on the Pharisees here. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, friends, you and I, we can only judge by outward appearance, but God is going to judge the heart behind our worship. We may come into this place appearing to have it all put together while our pharisaical heart is full of pride, it's full of sensuality, it's full of jealousy. We, we come in here and we hide our sin. We hide our problems. We hide, we hide what's going on in our life because we want to appear that we have it all together in worship. Let me tell you, God is a God of order and form and structure. It's right for us to have structure in our worship services. But he's also a God of faith, hope, and love. He's also a God that desires our affections placed solely on him and his son. He despises, despises hypocrites. And he desires true, genuine belief in his son. And this belief This belief, this faith in Jesus and the works of Christ must lead us to repentance. They must lead us to works. 
And they must lead us to a right worship, a right and holy worship. We must not be flippant about how we choose to worship God, but we also must have a love for the God we are worshiping. When we have either the form or the heart wrong in worship, and we are not worshiping God. Secondly, now if you feel stung by the law, which you should, <laughs> it's okay. Here comes Christ. What is worship? Secondly, what is worship? Let me remind you of our definition. Worship is ascribing and giving glory to God in all of life, both in the way we worship and the heart behind our worship. And who better, who better exemplifies that than the God-man, Jesus? Who better? From the very beginning of Jesus' humanity, we see that Jesus' heart had a singular focus. When his parents lost him in Jerusalem and found him in the temple, Jesus said, where else would I be but my father's house? He loved his father. He loved to do the will of his father. His life's focus was to know and do the will of his father. His worship of the father looked like obeying all that he was commanded, even to the point of dying on a cross, dying for sinners. You and I break God's law continuously. We don't have a right worship, but Jesus, even in some of his most excruciating pain, in some of his most excruciating sufferings, never broke a single commandment. For example, after his baptism, where did he go? He went to the wilderness for 40 days of prayer and fasting. After 40 days, that same slithering Satan comes and tempts Jesus to do likewise, likewise as Adam, to forsake God. And when Satan knew Jesus was famished, starving, he told Jesus, if you are the son, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But what does Jesus do? He appeals back to his father and worship. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He appeals back to his father in heaven. Even in Jesus' most vulnerable human state, he still appealed back to his father. Jesus obeyed the father completely, both out of a love for him and a desire to do his will. That's why, that's why Jesus said on the way to the cross, he says, not my will. If it's my will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had his heart set on accomplishing all that the Father would give him to do. And this, my friends, is the very picture of worship. This is our very Savior who redeems worshipers. This is the very Savior who gives you his spirit so that you can worship him rightly. Now Jesus not only worshipped his Father with a right heart, which was a perfect heart, but he also worshiped God with right form. And he instructs us to do likewise. He gives order to our worship. He teaches us how to pray. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles when you pray, who only heap up empty phrases, but pray like this, knowing that the Father already knows what you need. Then he prays the famous Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glory be to your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus teaches orderly worship. He commands orderly worship. And Jesus not only teaches his disciples how to pray, but he later gives them sacraments to remember. There's order in the mind of Christ. There's ways in which we should honor him. Things in which give the church correct ways to honor God and acknowledge our union with Christ. The first sacrament he institutes is his Lord's Supper, the bread and wine, which represents his body and blood. And the second sacrament, baptism, he tells his disciples. and He gives them order even in the way that they should baptize. He tells them to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There's order in the way we should worship. We shouldn't be flipping about our worship. Jesus shows us that his disciples had form, they had order, and then he shows them that their, he shows them really what their object of worship should be. True Christian worship really should be one that acknowledges and pays homage to Christ for redeeming us, for uniting us to him for all eternity. If that's If that's not there, then it's not worship. You see this? There's a right heart and form in the worship of God. Likewise, we need to be expressing a right right heart and right form in our worship in both public when we come here and in private when we leave here. Let me ask you a few questions for application. When When you come to public worship is your aim is your aim to behold God in his word through preaching do you come do you come thinking about your sins this past week and ready to confess sins pray for the body and sing praises to God and be a participant you you're being a participant in the Lord's supper we're uniting together around the table you think about that throughout the week Do you come expecting that God could move? That he can move through right form and continue working out your salvation even here? Or when you come to church, is it merely out of a sense of duty? I have to go. I've always gone to church, but you have no true desire to be here. Or maybe you think these are just moralistic exercises that that we're going through and there's really no spiritual grounding. You see, when we become Christians, when you become a believer, when your heart is regenerate, it is not merely okay for you to say, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. But what belief does, what belief does, what a true heart does is it now flows into a flood of worship. 
Your identity has been changed. You have a new heart with new motivations. You have actually experienced the saving grace of God through faith in Christ. And now you get to come here. You get to come here and delight in him in the ways that he has prescribed for us to know him and worship him. And now public worship should be, should be for the believer, one of your deepest joys. One of your deepest joys in this life. I want to turn to private worship now. Throughout the week, is your heart warmed by the mercies of God? Are there new morning mercies filling your mind every day where you just see God's grace all over? How God is growing your children. How God is growing your marriage. How God is, is not, has not left you or forsaken you. Are you finding comfort and joy in reading the scriptures, praying and singing to God? Maybe, maybe your family has set aside a time regularly where you sing, where you pray, and where you read God's word together. And how glorious that is. Or maybe you're too busy. Work is easy and enjoyable for you, but opening God's word is laborious. Singing hymns and psalms and praying seems trivial. Maybe another Facebook thread or Twitter thread has captured your attention once again, and you've let another day go by without communing with God. Beloved, friends, is not our Savior worthy of your attention? A Savior who went to the cross for you, who died for you, is he not worthy of your attention, worthy of your worship? Is he not worthy of our gifts and our service? Yes, we are to work in various vocations to the glory of God, but we are also called in all of our life to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our spiritual Worship, Romans 12 tells us. Why are we called to that? Because he himself emptied himself of glory to become like us as a man. He had angels who bowed down at his feet. He was the roaring lion of Judah, yet became the bloody lamb and went to the cross to redeem a bride. Beloved, church, resolve tonight. That you won't let another day go by that you don't worship this great Savior. That you don't pray to this great God. Resolve now in your minds and your hearts that you will go to him and that you will love him. That's what worship is. It's all of life. Lastly, let me turn your attention to what worship will be like in heaven. As believers who are pilgrims in this world, we're just passing through. We, we still deal with our flesh. There will continue being idols, our flesh vying for our attention, grasping at our worship here on this earth. However, in heaven, we will be in a new realm, a new earth, where there will be, and this is, shouldn't sound trivial, there will be no more sin. Sin's done. It's gone. No longer will you be driven into the ground by sorrows and calamity and destruction. 
No longer will there be any viruses. No longer will there be any threats of war. No longer will there be any tyrannical rulers. No longer will there be any lies and conspiracies. No longer will there be any wolves in sheep's clothing. No longer will we have to deal with gossip and slander and murderous thoughts. No longer will we be swayed toward our carnal, fleshly, sensual desires. There will be nothing in heaven vying for our attention. Nothing in heaven vying for our attention except the glory of God. That's it. Beholding him. Heaven will be about beholding and serving our great Savior. Revelation 22, our passage says that his servants will worship him. I'd like to close by reading Revelation 7. So if you'll flip there. Revelation 7, which shows us, this passage shows us who these servants are and how they will worship him. We get a picture of heaven in Revelation 7. Starting in verse 9. I looked and behold a Great, magnitude, great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. That's a good picture right there. Purity. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. It's finished. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We come to Christ, come solely to his blood, his sacrifice, and we've been made pure in heaven. Verse 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on his throne. Will and, and he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Where we have fallen, faulty shepherds in this world, we have a good shepherd in heaven. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God, our God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading. That's what worship will be like. We will serve God. We will be with him in his presence, we will neither thirst or be hungry anymore, 
No longer will there be suffering. No longer will there be scorching heat. Our lamb, our lamb will provide our shepherding. He will make us lay down in green pastures. He will guide us beside the living water. And he will take away all of your tears, all of your sorrows, so that you will worship him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. No one else could orchestrate such a great salvation as you. Father, you have provided a means of escape through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And and Father, I pray, Lord, that we would come to that idea every day. And thank you for the power of the cross every day. Father, that we would serve you every day. That we would worship you every day. That our hearts would be full, going to your word. Wanting to be sanctified in your word. Wanting to fellowship with those who are going to heaven. Father, help us even this night to know that truth, to live in that truth, to live in that reality that we're just pilgrims passing through, heading to our great home where we will honor and praise and glorify your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.